Welcome to Over the Rainbow. You're listening to Helen Disley, and this is a podcast all about colour. I'll be chatting today with Hugh Owens and Stephen Westland. Okay, so um, last week in the first of our colour-specific sessions, we discussed all things red which was one of the earliest colours used by humans due to it being readily available in a natural form um, in, in clay, clay soils. This week we turn our attention to the colour blue. Um, well, in contrast to red, blue really was, was really present in nature. And, and I know you could say we have a, a huge range of, of blue flowering plants and shrubs in our gardens and parks and, and that, but these are generally being created through selective sort of horticultural techniques. Um, in fact, early humans had no concept of blue and had no words to describe it. And Steve, you mentioned in one of our earlier sessions about colour vision and um, that Homer referred not to a blue sea, but to a red wine sea in his writings. Um, and it, it's actually generally... I think generally considered humans first began to develop blue colorants around four to six thousand years ago. Uh, a blue pigment that was probably first produced by ancient Egyptians and used to decorate their arts, aptly named Egyptian blue. It's considered to be the first synthetically produced color pigment in around 2000 BC. And they, they made this by grinding up limestone and heating it with a, a copper containing mineral such as malachite which gave them like an opaque blue glass and they could grind that down and mix it back up with thickening agents such as egg white to make a paint or a glaze. But prior to that, maybe the earliest naturally occurring blue um, was lapis lazuli, uh, which is a semi-precious gemstone um, that, again, the Egyptians imported from Afghanistan around 6,000 years ago. They tried, apparently, to turn it into a paint, but couldn't really get a good blue from it, just a, a grey colour. Um, so they used the stones as they were in, in jewellery. Um, a lapis lazuli first appeared as, as an actual pigment around the 6th century. Uh, it was known as ultramarine and was highly sought after among medieval artists and was very expensive. A lot of the blue pigments around that time were, were expensive. Um... I think at one point indigo, which um, was first used about 3000 BC in India, was called blue gold. Oh, really? And um, ultramarine was probably the most expensive of all pigments um, because it was only available in one part of the world, which was Afghanistan. Um, ultramarine literally means across the sea. It was like imported. Yeah, yeah. And these pigments were were very expensive. Um, one thing I just mentioned, Helen, is that you mentioned about um, Egyptian blue being the first synthetic pigment. Um, some colour chemists would would object to that. It was it was man made, that's for sure. But the word synthetic is normally used for a chemical process. Like you'll be familiar, Helen, with things like um, Perkins mm. colours. Okay. Um, and synthetic, synthetic is normally used to talk about chemically produced pigments. But yes, you're right. It was a sort of um, a, 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 let's say a process, and a lot of these pigments, they were there was a sort of man-made process involved in it. 
and um, one of the consequences I think of of the fact that these blue pigments were quite expensive was the way in which blue started to be used in art so for example if you look at a lot of paintings around 1300 to 1500 a lot of these paintings depicted religious um, mm. events or alleged events um, often the most important person in the painting whether it's for example um, Mary or, or Jesus they were painted with blue robes because blue was expensive it seemed symbolized to be, the, yeah yeah it symbolized that they were they were important and I think that's things like that have sort of if you, later on we'll talk about some of the sort of symbolic aspects of something like blue and you start thinking well where did, where did they come from and some of it is from that sort of thing you know it started off very early on if, if a pigment was very expensive I think we mentioned before purple being also a very expensive pigment and hence it became associated with royalty um, yeah blue was used a lot very very symbolically um, yeah I think, I think that's quite interesting um, that, that, that there's this connection with blue I've got this, this recollection that the Catholic Church colour coded the saints at some point and when I think it was about four five hundred AD and when they did that they gave Mary a shade of blue. Um I think they call it navy blue now. But it was supposed to then represent innocence mm. and trustworthiness. So the colour of blue was seen in an, a very positive light there and came to be used in things like uh, military and police uniforms to to, to convey that, that similar level of trust. Yeah. Yeah, so you're, hint, you're hinting there some of the sort of, yeah, the symbolic uses of, of, of blue hue. So this idea that blue is is trustworthy. Um, so, and we have to be always careful about different parts of the world where colours have different meanings. But in But in the West, certainly blue is associated with trustworthy sort of um, conservative safe and it's often used on lots of logos of companies on banks for example and as you say you, you can trace it back to sort of why that why that happened another thing that blue is associated with is is sadness so we have this phrase don't we Feeling blue. Mm. We, were, we were just all saying before we started that <laughs> at least two of us were feeling very blue today through um, overwork um, and underappreciation. <laughs> but but but, um, but yeah, why why have, have each of you looked into why why blue is associated with sadness? Where that comes from and like feeling blue. Have you thought about that? No, I haven't really. It, 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 it's such a ingrained th- th- thought isn't it of, of the blue and sadness and we just kind of accept it accept it mm. I've, I've seen two or three things and it, it, it I, I guess it's often there aren't definitive answers to these things I've, I've seen a few things like um, uh, at one point 
um, if a captain died on a ship, they would fly a blue flag okay. um, to symbolise that. Uh, but that's probably not the cause of it. It's a symptom, mm. if you know what I mean. That was probably because blue was associated with, with sadness. Um, I heard one story about um, Greek mythology where Zeus would make it rain when he was um, angry or, or upset or, or sad uh, or displeased. And then we have a, we have blue associated with rain, for example, with, with water. Um, and yet another story I heard was the idea that um, if you think about the very earliest times, if you're not very well and you're dying, especially if you can't breathe very much, you, you start to turn blue. And so we might start to associate feeling mm. blue as being not very not not a good situation to be in and I, th I think often with a lot of these um, meanings it's really hard just to find and definitively to point to the, to the one thing that sort of caused it to happen I mean sometimes there is one thing but often it's just an accumulation of little things and and, and cultural norms and events that occur um, I've also heard the phrase, to have the blue devils. Have you heard of that? The blue devils? Yeah, to have the blue devils no. is a phrase, if you're feeling a bit depressed, you, you've, got, okay, you've got the blue yeah. devils. Um, it's not one I, I use in normal, <laughs> normal life. But I, I think I've mentioned before that um, the thing that is one, well, one of the things that really agitates me is this idea that you get these very simplistic infographics on the internet saying blue means this and blue means that because blue can mean many many things depending upon the context so we've already talked about the fact that blue is associated with being safe and reliable um, the blue for uniforms in the police that Hugh mentioned and then we've been talking about blue being associated with um, with sadness you know, um, but there are a few other things as well. So, for example, the sort of the the, the blue. The have you heard of the thing a blue ribbon event, mm. or the blue ribboned? So this was they used to award the blue ribbon to a cruiser a liner that could cross the Atlantic um, in the fastest time from about eighteen ninety, and now. If you get the blue ribbon or blue ribbon event, it's sort of, and it it refers to any sort of prestigious um, uh, event or or race, for example, like that. But it wasn't, of course, the use um, for crossing the Atlantic that made it that made this connection. It sort of comes at much much earlier than that. So Henry VIII established the Order of the Holy Spirit. And um, and the the knights who had that award, um, this goes right back to 1578. The knights who had that award were called les cordons bleus, mm. the blue the blue cords, because the the knights who had this award had a, a Maltese cross with a blue ribbon, the blue cord. And so, where does this idea that blue is somehow important come from? Then you're back again with this idea 
that they painted important people in blue and part of that is connected with the idea that blue is very expensive as a pigment. So a lot of these things are all, all connected together. So that's already sort of at least at least three meanings of the colour blue um, that we've um, spoken about, sort of, I guess, sadness. Um, what's the other one? Sadness. Uh, sort of importance and trustworthiness. As an, an anecdotal on the trustworthy and importance, Steve, I don't know if you recall... Uh, you, when you were a choir boy back in the day, um, didn't the didn't the head choir boy also wear a blue um, ribbon? Yeah, he did. He did. But uh, it, it was a few years ago. I don't know if it's. I don't know if that's just coincidence. <laughs> I was never good enough to be a head choir boy. Um, I was a very junior choir boy. But there were there were ribbons. Um, I certainly remember a blue ribbon. And also a red ribbon, and I can't remember which one was more important—blue or red. It might—it might have been blue. Uh, uh, but yeah, this is this is—you can see where these things come from. Yeah, I think I've I've seen um, some etymology of it, and as you said before, the blue of the color of the clear sky—you um, you hear that that association. But I've also heard it associated with the word for for livid as well and grey so that seems to come up quite a lot so to be blue in the face would be to be livid with effort um, so you know, they might have said to be black and blue in the face um, to, to indicate kind of frustration yeah. that's interesting as well um, so, so there is some some links with language, I think. Um, it is interesting that when we were talking about red last last week, that that pigment seemed to be used a, a very long time ago, and yet when we look at the blue pigments that we have available to us now, um, actually there was one created fairly recently, but otherwise we have pretty set pigments that we use and mm. dyes that we use um probably the most famous dye is the one you've mentioned is, is indigo and uh if you're wearing trousers today steve you may have some some indigo <laughs> yeah, green I'm not jeans trousers, on unfortunately um <laughs> you'd be glad to hear <laughs> D- don't stand up no. um, that's right so in- indigo is incredibly important i mean as you say it was the main color for, for jeans um I think now they use synthetic indigo. Um, but it's funny you should mention um, the fact that we, we haven't had that many new pigments for a long time. Um, and you mentioned blue, didn't you, Hugh? So there was, there was this... Um, yes, yeah. New, a new blue pigment was actually developed um, in 2009 um, um, at Oregon State University. And uh, it is the first new blue pigment in in literally two hundred years. And um, the person who invented it was Mass Subramanian. Um, and I actually had dinner with him about two years ago because he received a medal from the Society of Dyes and Colours whilst I was the president there. Uh, really nice, really nice chap. 
So actually, you know, the, 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 we don't we don't get that many new pigments now. As you said, it's a fairly rare event to have a, a, a new pigment. And of course, what did we do with it? Well, it's one of the new Crayola it is, crayons, yeah, it isn't is. it? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I think that's his main use, actually. Funny yeah. enough. It, it is interesting then if you start to look at that and if you think that we haven't really created any new blue pigments over for over 200 years then if you look at blue in nature there's not a high prevalence of, of, of blues as Helen mentioned earlier in nature if you sit there and you start to think about the sorts of animals and plants that are blue then you start to struggle to to compile a, a major list of them. And a lot of the blues that you actually see in nature are due to the physical structure of the, the materials that these creatures are made from. Um, there are only a very limited amount of pigments that are used there. And many animals will change in colour, like flamingos, for instance... Um, by taking on those pigments in their diet, by actually eating things like shrimp. So uh, a flamingo would usually be grey unless it eats these pink shrimp yeah, yeah. and have, has these carotenoids and then will we'll change colour um, in a slow way as they, they mature and they're, they're influenced by the diet. I should say, yeah, nat- natural blue pigments are, are pretty rare. And as you say, most of our colouring, humans and lots of mammals, is basically me- melanin, isn't it? And it's basically with various yes. shades of, of brown. And even, you know, the, if you look at people's eyes, um, yes, melanin, the amount of melanin controls the colour of the eyes. And people might say, but ha-ha, some people have blue eyes. But as, as you know, that's not caused by a pigment. That's caused by, by scattering. This is a, diff- a different process. Um, so as you say here, a lot of the animals that are blue, or insects which are blue in the world, um, it's not through pigmentation per se, it's often through these other processes, you know, various diffraction processes. And it's perhaps a, a lot of uh, birds, isn't it? I mean, the peacock is probably the obvious one, it's blue. But also like butterflies, that, and that's more to do with the way the light is refracted and reflected the, the thing it? is uh, uh, you do get a combination and um, these evolutionary adaptations are incredibly clever um, Steve will know that part of my working life looks at trying to replicate some of this biomimicry um, at a very basic level if you have a look at things like uh, peacocks, the juvenile peacocks are quite fluffy and quite drab looking it's only when they, they grow up and the, the physical structure. It's not <laughs> <laughs> it's a despicable me, yeah. <laughs> You're not taking this seriously, are you? Um, uh, but as the, the, the feathers mature and as the structure solidifies, as the, they get bigger and um, more mature, then you see these physical structures that are tiny on the the feather of the peacock. And they look like little Christmas trees. Uh, They're they're tiny little structures, but they will interfere with certain wavelengths of light and only allow a certain fraction of the incident light, and and usually in the case for for peacocks at the blue range, to be reflected back and we get this great 
flash of blue from the from the feathers. So, and and it's a similar situation when you look at things like the the morpho butterflies that you you see with these big beautiful metallic blue type reflective wings. Um, and, w and we're trying to replicate a lot of those structures now. Um, there's, there's some ideas that if you have a structurally coloured coating, then you won't get any degradation in the colour. It should last for longer. Um, and, and, and so you've got uh, a clever surface that, that will in, modify in fact, the light that comes in. You don't need to colour it at all because it just is coloured by nature of its structure. So you don't need to use heat and water for a dyeing process. There's no effluent, for example. If you could do that, it'd be really fantastic, wouldn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, but we're not as good as the butterflies and the birds and the frogs no, at the moment. No. no, it's actually quite difficult, isn't it, trying to mimic? But these, these are nano-scale structures that you're trying to mimic, um, and, and they are quite, quite difficult to, to produce. Um, the only two um, creatures I can think of offhand that aren't bird or insect related there's the well sorry one is a bird but it's not feathers i don't think is the blue-footed booby has pale blue legs and i don't think that's feathered legs i think that is the skin and the other one is is a a, a monkey it's it's the golden snub-nosed monkey and he it was bright yellow fur but has again very pale blue rings around the eyes and again that's that's if it's not feathers and it's not iridescence, I don't know. I don't know what the process is for that. But it's very few, there's very few. Isn't there a monkey with a blue bottom? Or is that a dream I had? <laughs> I don't know. I've got some vague recollection of it. But I also, yeah, I'm I've not looking into of, that. Um, <laughs> David Attenborough movies, not movies, documentaries, as we all have. And um, I'm pretty sure I remember a blue reptile at some point. I think there's some reptiles which are blue. Yeah, the certain they, they, frogs. Yeah, yeah, they might also that might also be some sort of interference effect. I'm not sure. That, well, it starts to get even more complicated. Then I think you start to look at, at, at things like chameleons, where you have pockets of that you have these chromatophores, these cells which have pigments within them, and they can change the structure of that, uh, the distribution of pigment throughout the chromatophore, to allow. A certain amount of structural colour and a certain amount of, of um, more traditional pigmented um, type colour. So separately to all of that, blue is a very popular colour. So if you ask people what their favourite colour is in an abstract sense, um, and this has been done many times in many parts of the world, Pretty much always blues coming out up there near the top. Um, so you could say blue is the most popular colour. Um, but you you might sort of wonder why. Um, in my case, for example, I, I detest it. You know, it's ever since I had that dream about the blue-bottomed monkey. <laughs> um, ever since then, no, I, I I've always it wasn't hated. Wasn't a dream. <laughs> no, yeah, it wasn't. Uh, I, I've always hated blue. Um, I like red and I like pink and I like yellow. But I'm 
an exception because most people really like blue. And one of the things that interests me is why it is that you have this, you know, if, if blue is a very popular colour, why do we have this variability? Why do I not like it? And um, if you're familiar with Hugh with the work of Stephen Palmer, who is a um, yeah. psychologist at um, California, um, he's done some really interesting work. And what he suggested is that we like colours that remind us of things that we like. So he would argue we like blue because it reminds us of the blue sea or the blue sky. That's the iconic thing that's blue. But we don't like brown or dark yellow because it reminds us of other things. Um, I won't mention what they are, you can imagine. Um, and, and that's re really interesting because on the one hand we're saying blue is this colour associated with, with depression and sort of sadness and, and feeling blue. But on the other hand, um, we're saying it's the most popular colour because it reminds us of things we really like, like blue sky and blue sea. And that's why when I'm saying the idea that sort of blue means this and red means that is really problematic because if you imagine um, going to somewhere like Cornwall, Helen and I used to go there as kids on holiday, and you see the brightly painted houses, which are very happy, and one combination I can see in my head a lot now is white and blue. And yeah. it's, a, it's a very happy combination. It's not sad. So, you know, blue doesn't mean sadness. It doesn't mean reliability. In that case... It's an association, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. So, actually, the, the association the association that it has depends upon the context. You know, the, the blue on a yoghurt pot isn't, isn't symbolizing, symbolizing depression. It's symbolizing literal straw, uh, blueberries or blackberries or something like that. So, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting that all of these different all of these different meanings exist and they all have different contexts. Yeah, abs absolutely. I think if you think about the blues, uh, you know, we obviously think about sadness, but you could equally think about jazz. Mm. And I know that's kind of a melancholy style of jazz, but but there's, there's that association as well. So it, it's right throughout culture. And there's also like a... Like cleanliness and hygiene aspect of blue isn't it it's used on you know toothpaste and things that it's it is associated with with clean yeah with medical yeah medical it, it, yeah it is with 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 sort of um bathroom or or kitchen of more more bathroom actually more more sort of washing cleaning type products often have have blue um this it's 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 really quite um and then of course you have the cultural the cultural differences, which we've touched on before, so it's not it's not a simple thing to um, to work out what a colour is representing in a, in any particular context. The other thing worth talking about with blue is this idea that blue light is dangerous. Um, if you if anyone puts into Google that the, the dangers of blue light you'll come up with a whole load of stuff, uh, including the idea that if you look at your computer, it's damaging for your eyes. 
because of the short wavelength light and you can actually buy special glasses they're called nerd glasses and they've got yellow filters in and the people sell them to enable you to use your computer more safely um, though it turns out in fact that the blue light from a computer screen is is extremely unlikely to be damaging in, in that sense obviously any light if it's intense enough is, is potentially damaging but blue light from computer screens isn't isn't damaging but one thing that it is probably is is alerting so um, I think it was in a previous podcast she was talking about the intrinsically photosensitive retinal ganglion cells and these are the cells discovered about 20 years ago in the eye that basically respond primarily to blue light and um, and feed into the hypothalamus in the brain and sort of um, um, control or uh, entrain um, the release of, of um, hormones, also our body temperature, our circadian system. So the idea is that if you if you see too much blue light in the evening, it sort of stops you getting tired. And you, what you really need in an ideal world is is not much light in the evening, not much blue light. And then in the morning, you need lots of blue light. You know, and that's 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 a situation we would have evolved to have because if you think about it, when it got to the evening, a few hundred years ago, all you had was candles and firelight, and there was hardly any blue light there. So since we've had electric light, we've had a lot more blue light at night, and now people have got their iPads, you know, other smart tablets are available, um, <laughs> two inches from their face, you know, two hours before they, for two hours before they go to bed. Um, there's, there's a bit of research now that that could um, affect your sleep. So that's here's an interesting thing that I put to you. That tells you that blue is is alerting, right? In other words, it wakes you up. Blue light at night wakes you up. And I've had a PhD student who's actually had people coming in, um, exposing them to blue light in the evening, and then measuring using various methods how alert they are. Yes, and it's true, blue light is alerting. So why is it people say, in your bedroom, blue's a good colour, because it's it's relaxing. So how can it be relaxing and, and alerting at the same time? I've got a, an idea for that, and the idea is that you have to think about multiple effects or mechanisms. So the idea that blue is alerting is a mechanism that you could argue is fundamentally physiological through the intrinsically um, photosensitive retinal ganglion cells. Um, there must be a short way of saying that. <laughs> um, and and it, and it basically is it's a, it's a physiological process. And if the, if the light is intense enough and for long enough and at the right time, actually it depends on the time of day and things like this, then it can be alerting. But that doesn't mean that if, you, if you're sitting in your bedroom at night and you've got blue walls, obviously they're reflecting blue light, that doesn't mean that that blue light is alerting because it may not, may not be anywhere near intense enough to have that effect. So, so there's, there's, that's one effect which you could call the alerting effect, which is physiological. Then you have, for example, 
the idea that blue is calming or relaxing. I think we spoke last week again about the idea that blue light might, I say might, reduce your heart rate and blood pressure compared to say red light. So blue is calming, relaxing. You know, interior designers will tell you it's a good colour for bedrooms. That, to me, that's a completely different mechanism. It's what I'd call a psychological mechanism or a cognitive mechanism. It's because when you see the colour blue, it is reminding you of calmness. P partly because we now already, it's, it's, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. We sort of, we all associate blue with calmness now. But even before then, you might associate it with the sea or the sky. You know, it's, it's a nice colour, Stephen Palmer has talked about um, so to me it's it's not um, it's not crazy that blue can be both alerting and calming um, it's not a contradiction it just depends exactly on the circumstances on the intensity and all, all sorts of other things yeah it's really interesting I think there's a there's a another aspect there as well I mean generally you're going to paint your bedroom with uh, a nice blue colour. So there's a lot of absorption going on there and only a small amount of blue light being reflected back to you from the ambient source. Whereas we, we've moved on to using a lot of emissive screens and we know that to see a blue as bright and as vivid as a green, for instance, we have to boost some of the power to do that. Um, so... That there is this difference between the emission that you're having from these devices and the reflection. You're totally right, Hugh. So when, when I talk about the sort of the, the alerting effect and then the, the calming effect, let's say, it's probably the case that in general, in the emissive cases, it's more likely to be alerting. And, and it's more likely to be calming in the reflective case. I, I certainly agree with that. Um, and part of, part of that is to do with the intensity. Yeah, I mean, we know that we have inbuilt filter in our eye, our macular lutea, to try to, to reduce some of that blue light that reaches um, the, the fovea. So we know that, uh, that obviously it's, it's going to be damaging in some way, and you just need to leave um, your favourite coloured teddy bear in the window uh, for any length of time, and you can see the photo fading that happens there. And and if you think that a lot of those shorter wavelengths are going to be reduced because the, because of the glass in the way, we still see those those dyed fabrics fading, uh, or that piece of paper fading, if you leave it in the window still. So there's still a fair amount of energy, up to about 480 nanometers. We'll kind of see that photo fading effect. Um, so it shows um, how significant some of those those uh, wavelengths can be. So what is happening there? It's something I obviously would have known 30 years ago, but I've forgotten. So a photograph that's been in the window for a long time will just look blue. So all the red has, has, has faded away. Is, is that to do with, with, with just molecular sizes? You know, are, red, are the red molecules broken down more easily? Well, I would certainly say that different molecules... Um, uh, degrade at different rates um, mm. and in fact I answered a question on Quorum the other day it was um, 
the question was, uh, when you have something like paper or textile and it fades because of washing or, or light, where does the dye go? That's what the question was. I thought it was quite an interesting question. Where does the dye go, right? And I explained it doesn't go anywhere, right? It's just, it's a chemical structure. And at some point it has, it undergoes some change on exposure to light normally or heat. And that breaks the molecule in some way and, and stops it being an effective absorber of light. So it doesn't go anywhere, it just changes form. Yeah, yeah. And actually, yeah. that same process of, of a molecule changing form also takes place in our visual system. You know, with this, they are visual pigments. The, the pigments in our eyes, which are light sensitive, are, are pigments. And they, but in this case, the fading, if you like, is, um, or the sort of the process is reversible. Um, so it's, it's constantly renewed. But um, in the case of a, a pigment on, say, um, textile or paper, it's, it's not reversible. And um, Helen and I both, both have degrees in colour chemistry, so it's, it's a bit shameful um, that we can't speak more about this. But I would simply say, I'll tell you how far I'd know about it, I'd say that it, some of these dyes or pigments fade at different rates. That makes sense. Um, and it's my understanding that most blue pigments are actually quite small in terms of molecular size compared to other pigments. And um, I, I've got one colleague I'm particularly thinking of now who, if he was listening to this, he'd probably be screaming out for me to say what it, what it, what it is. But I think probably those larger molecules are broken down more easily. Um, often there's a lot of conjugation, these alternating double bonds in them um, whereas blue pigments tend to be a little bit smaller and, and, and simpler in a way so I think that they are probably harder to break down um, which means that that's what often gets gets left um, but not always I guess it depends on the specific pigments which you which you use yeah and the, and the substrate and what, everything yeah, it's a, yeah. I imagine. so when we started this we were all feeling a bit blue are we feeling any better now no, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> not really. <laughs> no. um, perhaps it's apt that we've been talking about blue. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's not my favourite colour. It's um, and it's it is to me it is more of a sad colour than a happy colour. Um, it's not a you know I've got um, I'm looking here at my red chair, my red carpet, and my my red wall with my Manchester United picture on it. Um, <laughs> literally it's true right? a it's, deep psychological reason why you don't like blue it's a picture <laughs> and it's, got, it's, it's, it's actually painted by the official Manchester United artist actually and it's got um, it's black and white but it, all the fans are outside the ground and all the fans shirts are in red so the only colour in the image is red and it's really really oh, lovely. nice um, yeah so um, blue's not my my, my favourite topic so what are we going to call this one? The colour of what? The colour of trust. The colour of sadness. Not sure. Not sure. I think trust is pretty good. Blue is the colour. <laughs> that was a song, Chelsea. wasn't it, by Chelsea? Chelsea, yeah, Chelsea, yeah. Chelsea's song. Um... <laughs> 
Um, yeah, the colour of Blue Moon. Blue Moon, obviously, we could do. Uh... <laughs> Blue Moon. Blue is the mm-hmm. is the colour of um, a monkey's bottom. I think that's probably could be the. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, actually, the colour of, trust... of monkey's bottom. <laughs> No, no. <laughs> I might do that. <laughs> no, I won't do it. To be honest, I think it's. <laughs> I like the colour of trust actually because I think that is like what what the hell is the colour of trust? So you could say the colour of trust in a big font and then in a tiny little font underneath in brackets <laughs> and monkey's buttons and monkey's buttons. Yeah, monkey's buttons. <laughs> um, and what are we going to do next week? What colour something are we cheerful, next? cheerful. Yeah, something more cheerful than blue. Yellow. 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 Yeah. That's a band. Word, Nothing controversial it? about yellow. Wasn't there a band called Yellow? There was a song called Yellow. Yeah. A song called Yellow. Yellow. I think it was. I think it was just Y E L O. I'm sure that there probably was. Hmm. Yeah. Um, what did they do? Yeah, a Swiss, a Swiss electronic duo. Sounds right up your street, that does, Steve. Um, yeah, yeah. And I bet Gary a, knows all about those. And they had band. a song. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Gary's Beauty Stay Off. So, yeah. Remember? That, that, ow, some of that ow. music. I, I often think that Ferris Bueller's Day Off was the art of noise. I think some of the art of noise were in that movie, but the, but that band, oh yeah, yeah. you know what oh, I mean. Oh. That song in that was Yellow, yeah. one of my favourite songs. So let's let's do Yellow next week. Sounds good. <laughs>